If, uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to the text that we're going to be looking at today, please turn to Matthew chapter 16. And so this morning, uh, we're looking at a really a short passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 24 and going down through verse 26. Uh, but we're going to look at and think about some of the context around this as well. Uh, today we're beginning a new sermon series, and uh, it, uh, as I've, I've mentioned to you kind of leading up to this and, and over the last couple of weeks, and some of you probably saw the video that I did, it's a series on discipleship, which is going to be an emphasis that we are going to be focusing on through the fall and really into the new year, and it's an emphasis that our, our elders, our session, uh, we really want to focus on in the life of our church. Uh, the series is called God's Design for Discipleship. And the reason for the, the title is because what I hope to do, and, and you know, I, I can fail at this like anybody can fail at this, but what I hope to do is to look at God's Word and look at several different passages in God's Word to focus on and talk about discipleship and help us to think about what does God want for this. Now, I imagine that for all of us, or if not all of us, maybe most of us who are here who spent any time in church, uh, you probably know that discipleship is important. It, it really is. It's something that churches talk about and think about a lot. Uh, we are called by Jesus to go and make disciples. And, and yet at the same time that that is the case, you may also know that there, there are a lot of conversations about discipleship. What is it? And what does it mean? And how do we do it? And all these different kinds of things. And we're going to be really thinking about that over the fall. And, and, um, and, and also as we, we launch next year and really sort of develop this and flesh this out a little bit more uh, in terms of what we're going to provide here in terms of ministry structure for discipleship in the life of our church. Now, the, the word disciple, it, it comes from the Greek word Mathetas. And mathetas is a word that simply means, it simply means a learner of or learner about or follower of another person. And it could be any number of things. I mean, you could be a disciple of anything, a disciple of a person of a particular profession or whatever other kind of thing. But when you think about that, that idea of a disciple, uh, it can help you in considering what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Because if a disciple is a learner of or a learner about or a follower of, then when you think about Jesus, then of course a disciple of Jesus is a learner of, a learner about, and a follower of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? And it's this idea of fellowship, it's this, this notion that leads me to uh, the passage that we're going to look at today, which I think is a great passage to begin, to begin discussing discipleship. Because what I believe this particular passage and its surrounding context does for us is it lays um, a foundation for us to really begin to think about our, our understanding of discipleship, of learning from, and of following Jesus, okay? There's a lot more that we're going to build as we, we talk about this over the weeks ahead, uh, but we're going to start here, and in my opinion, if we don't get this, we can get off track pretty quickly. And so beginning in verse 24, here's what it says. Then Jesus told his disciples, if, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word. Now, as I, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I think this passage is a, is a great passage for, for, beginning, for beginning our discussion on discipleship. 
But, but the truth is, it's, it's not just this passage alone. And that's not the only reason why I chose this passage. It is this particular passage, but it's also the, the immediately surrounding texts that, that speak to the same kind of idea that lead into this passage. And, and I'm not going to, if you have your Bibles open, you're already seeing this, but, and I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to talk about them a little bit and look at some pertinent texts that relate to this. And so there are two, two passages that immediately lead into the text that I've just read this morning. And in both of these passages, you see the, the Jesus sort of interaction with the apostle Peter, okay? And in one of these, it, it is a very positive interaction in terms of something that Peter understands. And then in the other of these, it's a, it's a negative thing that Peter does in terms of his response to Jesus. Now, the first one of these comes just up a few verses earlier in verse 13 down through verse 20, which I'm not going to read. But there, and you probably know this passage, it's where the disciples are in Caesarea Philippi, the district of Caesarea Philippi with Jesus. And Jesus asks them this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Right? You remember that section of scripture? Right. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And, and they start responding and giving answers to that. But Peter answers, right? And remember what he says in verse 16. He says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, why is that important? Because it is a confession as to who he true, excuse me, truly is. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, the son of the living God. And it is so important and so right on that what, what Jesus actually says to him is that's not from flesh and blood. The Father has given you that. He's revealed that to you. And then he goes on and he says on that, really on that confession, the church will be built. Now, the reason why that is critical to our understanding of discipleship is because you cannot have it. You cannot be a disciple unless you come to terms with this reality, unless you know that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the son of the living God. We have to believe in him, right? A disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who believes in Jesus. He's not just simply a, a, a someone who has knowledge, but actually believes in who he is, okay? Now, what happens next is also interesting because right after this, right after Jesus says, yeah, you get it. This is the confession in which the church will be built. Then he goes on to say something really important that we also have to embrace and believe to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus foretells what's about to happen. And he foretells that he is going to go into Jerusalem and he says, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, all these folks, they're going to put me to death. And I am going to rise again in three days. So he talks about the death and the resurrection of himself, right? Death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, when you think about what, is it, what does it really mean to come to terms with being a disciple of Jesus Christ, both of these things we have to get, both of them, right? You have to get the person of Jesus, who is he, and you have to get the work of Jesus, right? The significance of his death and resurrection and believing those things, that he died for your sin, that he gave his life for you. But here's the thing that is so interesting about this passage, Peter goes from the height of getting it right to the depth of getting it wrong, doesn't he? He does. He does. He gets the first thing right. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. But then when that very Christ, the very Son of God, he says to him, now I'm going to die and rise again, 
Peter says, no way. Uh-uh. And this is what we see in verse 22 and 23, where he says, it says, and Peter, Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from me, from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But then he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Jesus knows, and I'll tell you why in, in a little bit, because this, this sort of is, is pulling on another earlier passage in Matthew. But he knows that Peter is speaking with the forked tongue of the evil one. Right? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You're a hindrance. Why? Because here's something that Peter is doing. He wants a Christ without a cross. He wants Christ without a cross. He wants all of the power and all the things that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God is. But he doesn't want the cross. And so at the end of this, if you notice the end of verse 23, here's, here's what Jesus says about that. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter, you're thinking like the world, and you're not thinking like God. Now, what this, this helps us to, to begin to do, and this is part of the sort of the foundation that we're going to build discipleship on, is it helps us to understand that our, our, our thinking, our, our processing, our very way of considering things has to be reoriented from the very foundation, from the, from the very beginning, right? And, and it has to be reoriented away from the world and its ways and, and toward the, the ways of God. Okay? And so then as we now move our attention into the text that we're going to look at today in the context of what I think we've seen before, I, I believe that what, what Jesus is basically teaching us here, will teach us here as we look at it in more detail, is that our, our thinking needs to be oriented around these two things. And I think both of them are a reflection of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And what are they? Number one. Our thinking has to be oriented around the centrality of the cross. If we don't get that, we're not really going to get discipleship. Okay? And the second thing is that our thinking has to be oriented around the reality of a better life. Now, by a better life, I'm really emphasizing the new life, the resurrected life, what is ours when we come to terms with death of this life, okay? Now, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit and think about what Jesus is doing here with Peter and the disciples. So the first thing is really discipleship in our, in our thinking has to be reoriented around the centrality of the cross, the centrality of the cross. It has to be central. It, it has to be the focus. And, and, and what I'm saying here to you is not only that it, it has to be the death of Jesus has to be the, the focus for our salvation, right? 
And I imagine that the vast majority of us who are here today, who are believers in Jesus, which I think the vast majority of us are, you get that, that you need, you understand how much you need the, the saving work of Jesus Christ, his cross work for your salvation, right? But I'm also saying something more to you than that. What I'm also saying to you is that the cross becomes for us the paradigm or the, the model by which we think about everything. Now, I'll give you an example of this. Later, Paul, if you remember, uh, Paul in, in his interactions with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, one of the things he says to them, now consider this for a moment. Paul says to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, he says, when I was among you, I, listen to his words, I knew nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said. I knew nothing when I was with you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now what this means is that everything that Paul was about, everything that Paul said, everything that Paul did, all of the ways that he was with the Corinthians was to find around Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? Around the death of Jesus. Now what this helps us to begin to understand is that when we start building the foundation of discipleship, its shape has to be cruciform. It has to be cross-shaped. Discipleship is a cruciform life. Now, if we, if we don't get that, and I'll, I'll spell that out a little bit more in a moment, but if we don't get that, that discipleship has to be shaped by the cross, how we live, the model, the paradigm for Christian living, it's, it's the cross. If we don't get that, then I think what we end up doing is we think discipleship is just simply about some other things, like discipleship is about theological ideas. Now, is it? Well, on the one hand, yes, and we're going to talk about that as we move along. Or that discipleship is about sort of moral, ethical behavior. Now, is it about that? Well, yeah, in a sense it is, and we're going to talk about that as we move along. But if you don't get the cross as the center of it, then what we can end up doing is this. We can talk about our theological ideas, and we can talk about our ethical behavior, but all of it is still surrounded by the power in the, of the self. It's still about us. And what Jesus is clearly saying here is it can't be. It can't be about anything that you and I bring. Anything that you and I can find in this world. It has to be solely about the power of God at work. And we are called to die to this world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know these words, are famous words, where Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he does. And that's what Jesus says here. So if you notice verse 24, what does he say? Then Jesus told his disciples, pause there for a second. Now, this is right after Peter rebukes him, and he rebukes Peter, okay? So Peter rebukes him saying, no cross, no cross, no cross. Don't want that. Jesus says, that's Satan. Your thinking is way off. You're like the world. You're not like God, right? Then Jesus told his disciples, right? It's at that point. Now, I don't know 
like you, could, you could think of like a number of ways of process through what, what's going on here. It says that Peter had taken Jesus aside to tell him this. I don't know if he took him a long way aside. I don't know if he took him a little ways aside so that the other disciples were actually hearing what he was saying when he said those things. But what happens is Jesus in response to Peter is basically going, you are really off right now. You're really off. And he turns his attention to the other disciples because Peter is so far off. And he turns his attention to the other disciples. And here's what he says. If anyone will come, if anyone. Now that's, that's broadening the language. That's universalizing the language. It's basically saying this isn't just true about you disciples. This is true about everyone and anyone. If anyone is going to come, meaning you're going to be my disciple. If anyone's going to do that. Then he goes on and he gives three commands. And the commands are these. Let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, do you know what he's doing here? He's doing what? He's saying the cross is not just simply the means of your salvation. It is the paradigm of your discipleship. That if you are going to come after me, if you are going to learn me and follow me, then you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Now those three commands, you could pull distinction out of them, but they're all leading to one conclusion. That what Jesus told them he was about to do going to the cross to die, that is to be the model for us. We must die. Now, as I say that, I imagine some of you are sitting here going, well, what in the world does that mean? Is, he, is, he, is that literal? Well, is it? Here's what we do with take the cross sometimes, and I think it's false, actually. It's wrong, but we do this. We'll look at taking the cross, and we'll say, okay, well, that has to mean that we are going to go through trying, troubling, difficult times. And so we use this as a phrase like this. You know, I have a, I'm in, I have a, a troubling health condition that I've been in with and de dealt with without resolution for a long time. This must be... Listen to the words. You probably said them. I have my cross to bear. Or we'll say things like this. I'm in a difficult relationship in the home with my kids or with my spouse or whatever, and, but I'm pressing on, but there seems to be no, no resolution of this. And then we'll think, this must be my cross to bear. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It's not what it could have possibly meant to these folks who heard it. They did not think of the cross like that. The cross wasn't about bearing suffering. Do you know what the cross was about? Death. Without exception. All the time. And the imagery that he's using here, taking or bearing the cross, is, is, is probably this imagery of taking the horizontal post. And Jesus had to do this. Taking the horizontal post carrying it to the place of death, or the place of crucifixion, getting nailed to the vertical post, and you nailed to the horizontal post, and lifted up in the air to be crucified and put to death. 
What Jesus is clearly saying here to his disciples is this. I am about to die. And you must also. All right? Is it literal? Well, it certainly would have been for them. Remember their story? What happened to most of them for simply following Jesus? What happened? What happened to so many in the early church for simply following Jesus? What happened? What happened to so many through the history of the church for simply following Jesus? What happened? What's happening with people in the world today for following Jesus? What's happening? And I would hope and pray that if before you someone came up and said, listen, you can deny Jesus and live, or you can stand for Jesus and die, that you would say, because this is what a disciple says, because they love Jesus, I will die. Because I'm going to stand for Jesus. But that's not all this is. It's more to it, right? It's more to it. And I think the more comes out in understanding what's being said here, where it says, if anyone were to come after me, let him first of all deny himself. It's a, it's a denial of something. Now, it's not talking about an austere life. It's not talking about denying anything and everything so that you're just poor and impoverished and don't have anything and all of that. I don't think that's what it is. When he's talking about denial here, I think the way to sort of get at the intent of this are the things that Jesus did that eventually led to him being put to death and consider those things in relationship to yourself. Now, on the one hand, when we think about Jesus on the cross, we understand this, that it was the sovereign decree of God that his son would go to the cross and die for our sin, right? But think about it from a human perspective and begin to think about the things and the way that Jesus lived that eventually caused the religious leaders and the Roman authorities to collude to put him on the cross. What did he do? He lived wholeheartedly to God, his father. He denied and rejected over and over again the powers and the ways and the hypocrisy and the corruption and the evil of this world over and over again. He did not allow this world and its thinking and it's, it's rebellion, it is corruption. He did not allow this world to, to define him or to shape him or to mold him. He lived for his father over and over, day in and day out, and it ended in him being put to death. Because this world system will not have that. And so often I think what ends up happening is there's this, this sense of sort of walking the fine line that we live in. I live with Jesus, but I, you know, I've got to compromise here and I've got to compromise there. I've got to give in to the patterns of the world, the corruptions of the world, the thinking of the world, all these different kinds of things. And before you know it, this isn't you, this isn't me, is it? We're not denying and dying. We're living like. And here's the thing. 
and the reason why I believe this has to be the foundation for discipleship. It has to be the starting place. Because if we don't get this, death to this world system, death to its ways, death to its powers, death to self, death to sin, death, death to our own sort of empowerment to write, the death to all of that, if we don't get it, Here's what we end up turning discipleship into, and I see it in churches all the time. It's self-improvement programs. It's things all around us to sort of bring about the betterment of the self or the betterment of an agenda. It takes Jesus, instead of putting him in the first position, it puts him in the back. And it's basically, Jesus, you're here to sort of help me do my thing. It's forming all kinds of identities and agendas around a corrupt world that will be judged. And it's using God to make it happen. Discipleship is not about fitting God into your agenda. Discipleship is about you fitting into his. Into his. Now, that sounds really hard. But here's the thing I think we have to consider in relationship with this. This, this, and, and we see it even when Jesus announces to them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. I mean, one of the things that you have to understand is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that, that idea of going to Jerusalem to die, I mean, that wasn't something that he would have kind of go, woo ye. Wow, isn't this wonderful? It wasn't. The Garden of Gethsemane shows that, right? It wasn't. But he says more than that. He doesn't just simply say, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. I'm going to be raised in three days. There's, there's something more. And this is why I think for all of us it's so important that we, we attach the, the, the death and the crucifixion of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. Because what he's declaring is that there is something better than all and anything that this world can offer. And so the second thing I think we have to embrace is this notion of the reality of a better life. When I was studying this, a scripture that came to my mind, or a part of scripture that came to my mind, was the temptations of Jesus when he was in the wilderness, right? And Satan came and he tempted them these three times. And the third of the temptations is the one that I find most intriguing in relationship to what he's doing here in this passage and in the immediately preceding passage. Because when, when Satan came a third time, this is what you read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through verse 10. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and, and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. All right, so think about what's happening here, right? He takes him to this high mountain, shows him all the kings, however he does that, all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I'm going to give these to you. 
if you worship me. Now, on the one hand, and I know how some of us think about this, we kind of go, well, how, he, he didn't have the authority to do anything like that. And, I, you know, I don't know. Don't, I mean, he was the prince of the air. He was the ruler of this corrupt world or whatever. But he, he offered it all of the world. And you can look at that and you can think, okay, why in the world would Jesus be tempted by that? To have all of the kingdoms of the world. And I will tell you why this is a real temptation. These weren't fake temptations. These were real temptations. Was because Jesus came for all the kingdoms in the world. Do you understand that? He came to be king of kings and lord of lords. He came to rule over all creation, the new creation and the new earth. Jesus came for that. Don't make it reductionistic. Don't break it down to say, oh, Jesus just came to save your little soul and that's it. He came for the restoration of all things and he would reign over all things. And so Satan says, listen, I'll give that to you. All you got to do is not listen to your daddy. Submit to me. You can have the kingdoms without the cross. You can have the world without the cross. I'll give it to you. And Jesus responds to that by saying, what? Um, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God with all of your, with, with your, your God and him only shall you serve. And then the text goes on to say that the devil left, right? In Luke's version of it, it says, this is Luke 4, until an opportune time. Meaning, he tempted Jesus with the world. You can have it. But don't go the way of your father. You can have it. And then when Jesus said, "Uh -uh, I'm going to go the way of my father, Satan left, but he waited for a more opportune time. And that more opportune time came right here in the passage that we're looking at today. And it's how he knew what Peter was doing and why he said, get behind me, Satan. Because again, what is Peter doing? He's saying, Jesus, you can have it. You are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, but you don't have to go that cross cross route. You don't have to go that way. Now, Jesus understood something, right? And this is what you and I have to understand. We have to. I plead with you to. I have to. It is that on the other side of this route, the cross, on the other side of this, is something altogether glorious and altogether wondrous that we cannot have without going that way. You following me? So then when you look at the text again, what Jesus is basically doing in the passage that we're looking at is he's saying, okay, here's the reason. This is the rest of it, verse 25 and 26. Don't put it on the screen yet. But what he's basically saying is, here's the reason why. Here's how you need to live. 
You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and you need to follow me. Verse 25 begins with the word for. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see it. Verse 26 begins with the word for. It's the word because. It's basically saying, here's why you need to do this, because of these things. And in both of them, what Jesus is doing is he's offering the rationale and the reason as to why going the route of the cross is the right way to go. Okay? And so in verse 25, I'll tell you when to put it on the screen. In verse 25, he offers two declarations. In verse 26, he offers two rhetorical questions, which are questions that just, they, they're so obvious in terms of what the answer is for a fact. You don't even have to answer them, okay? In both, he talks about life. In both, he talks about life, true life, real life, eternal life. It's the same Greek word, even though in 25 is the word life and 26 is the word soul, translated that way. The reason I think our English Standard Version of the Bible translate the word life and soul is because what Jesus is doing is he's saying this. If you deny yourself, you take up your cross and follow me. There is something that will be better in this life and throughout all eternity. Okay? So now put verse 25 on the screen. So first reason as to why you and I, anyone, everyone, who seeks to follow Jesus, should deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, the, the reason to go this path, the path of the cross, is because if we desire to save something here, save our lives here, to, to live by the things of the world that would give us something of this world, to be shaped by these things, to be ordered by these things, to be controlled by these things. What he's saying is we will lose it. We will lose it. And in losing it, I don't think he's just simply talking about eternity. I think he's talking about we will lose what true life, what good life, what beautiful life is because of what? The corruptions of this world. Do you get that? If we are declaring the name of Jesus and we are trying to hold on to the things of this world at the same time, don't be deceived. Those things will corrupt you. They will take you. And they will make your profession and name only. But then what he says, well, whoever loses his life this, in this world, defined by this world, shaped by this world, whoever loses this for Jesus, what do we find? What do we find? Life, resurrection life, real life on the other side. Jesus rejected Satan in that, that, that offer of the kingdom because of this. Why in the world would the Son of God want to rule over a corrupt world? And then in verse 26, for, it's because, right, again, it's answering why you deny him, take up the cross and follow him, for, and these are two rhetorical questions. What will it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, like, just pull out the, the balance scales of heaven. Weigh it out, do the math. What value would it be to have the whole of this corrupt world and lose your soul? What is your soul worth? You know, as I, as I wrap up, I want you to think about it like this, okay? C.S. Lewis, who's, I think he's a fan for, for many of us who are here. We were a fan of his. In his Weight of, the Weight of Glory, he, he has this, this quote, it's, it's, and it's a familiar one. But I think it, it pictures in many ways what, what we're getting at here, what I'm getting at that has to undergird discipleship. And it's this, this image, you can put the quote up on the screen, where, where Lewis says, well, you know this, well, many of you do. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy is offered to us. And then he goes on and he gives this image to help us to think about this, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I love that imagery, right, of the ignorant child because I think it can happen to us. We can be like this child and we can spend so much of our time and attention just sort of being like this child playing mud puddles, making mud pies in the slum, all in the mud. And I don't mean that in a good way. I'm not telling you to retreat and run, but all in the mud, all in the mud of the world, letting it define and shape you. Because that mud seems so powerful. That mud seems so real. That mud seems so right and that mud seems beautiful. But the reason is because you are not seeing the ocean. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the death and the resurrection of Jesus sets us free. Free. To die to this to live for him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for this time in your word and the faithfulness that you have shown to us and the path by which you have established, Lord, our way of living for you. Help us to do that to your glory and help us to do that, Lord, for our good. There is a beautiful life for us. And that life is not defined by the principles and values and corruptions and power systems of this world. You have won a victory over this. And we are in your train. And we pray that we would live following you. So that everything we think about in terms of knowing and following Jesus is shaped by you and your will and your word. And not by ourself and selfishness and sin and corruption. Help us to die to self and to live to God. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's stand as we sing our closing.